Well, have you ever felt like you just needed a vacation? <laughs> Judging by the chuckles, yes. I recently heard about a couple. Uh, they were empty nesters, and they brought the wife's elderly mother to live with them so that the wife could care for her mom. And after months and months of caring for her elderly mom, whom she loved, she was, she was just really tapped out, and she's like, look, I need a break. I need a vacation. And she said to her husband, say, hey, uh, sweetie, would it be okay? Could I just get away for several days kind of to recharge the batteries? She said to her husband, look, I, all I need you to do is just to look after and care for my elderly mother as well as our cat. Could you do that? And my husband's like, of course. You know, I want you to be, go be refreshed, go on, have, a, have a vacation. Go for a week or so. So she left. Well, a couple of days into the trip, uh, the wife called to see, you know, how, how are things going, checking in, and the husband's like, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the cat's dead. She's like, what? The cat's dead? She said, yeah, I'm sorry, the cat died. She's like, well, well why did you have to, how did that be the first thing you told me? Why do you have to be so blunt and direct about it? He's like, well, what do you mean? Well, she said, look, you could have, like, eased me into this bad news. She's like, I don't understand. She's like, you could have told me something like, well, you know, the cat was playing on the roof. And then when I called back a couple days later, you could say, well, then the cat accidentally fell down and broke its arm. So then by the time I arrived, I kind of knew something was bad, so that the, and then you could have told me the cat had died. And he's like, honey, you're right, I'm sorry. She's like, it's okay. I said, okay, how's my mother? I said, um, she's been playing on the roof. <laughs> now, uh, th there, there are many reasons why I enjoy that story. Yet, yet aside from its humor value, one thing this story accurately portrays is this, and that is our aversion to death. We don't like to think about it. And as this story illustrates, we certainly don't like to talk about it as well. Yet the truth is, all of us are going to die. Each and every one of us, you and I, we will die. In fact, here's a question I'd like to consider. You don't have to answer it out loud, but just, let's just think about this for a moment. Who would you like to speak at your funeral? Death is inevitable. We are going to die. You don't have to say it out loud, but, but who would you like to speak at your funeral? According to writer Aaron Freeman, he argues that you would want a physicist to speak at your funeral. And you know why? Because as Freeman writes, it's so that your family will understand that your energy has not died. But listen to what Freeman writes. He writes this. He says, you want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, Every BTU of heat, every wave particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. 
Now, I don't know what the going rate is to have a physicist speak at a funeral. I just want to tell you, I don't think it's worth the money. And you know why? Because, let's give, because when you peel back all the emotional language, notice, the only hope he's to offer in death is energy redistribution. Friend, in contrast, the Bible offers a radically different type of hope. For you know what the Bible offers in the face of death? The Bible offers a physical resurrection. Friend, please hear me. The good news of the scripture is not only that Jesus Christ saves sinners by faith alone in Christ alone, but also the good news of the Bible is that one day all who are united to Christ by faith, they will enjoy a glorious resurrected body, a body free from sin and decay, for all eternity on the new heavens and the new earth with God forever, amen? As we sing this morning, made like him, like him we rise. The hope for the Christian is not energy redistribution, but resurrection. Why? Because as we sing this morning, Jesus Christ conquered the grave. But you know what? Many people find this too hard to believe. In fact, some find it incomprehensible. Honestly, they find this idea, this notion that a man would be crucified and then come back to life unbelievable. And, and perhaps, perhaps that's you here this morning. You grew up going to church. You're somewhat familiar with the Bible. In fact, you have no problem identifying or saying that Jesus was a significant religious leader. In fact, you might even say how much you admire the fact that Jesus laid down his life for others. Yet what's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus Christ, from going all in, is this notion of resurrection, the claim that Jesus rose bodily from the dead and that one day, Christians will too. Is that you this morning? Are you skeptical or have your doubts about this claim? Friend, if so, know that you are not alone. For many in the ancient church in Corinth had similar doubts. Friend, this Easter morning, I want us to look at a passage from the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And as with many books in the New Testament, we are reading someone else's mail. This is the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, the church which he started. And in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul gives an apologetic defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this text, please hear me, Paul gives what is arguably the clearest explanation of the central message of biblical Christianity, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friend, 
this is why I have intentionally chosen this text on this day. And friend, I want to lay all my cards out on the table this morning. I'm going to tell you directly what my, my goal is this morning. My intent this morning is the same aim as the Apostle Paul, and that is this. If you're here this morning, and you would not identify yourself as a Christian, if you're skeptical of the claims of Jesus Christ, if you are here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, my aim by the time we're done this morning is that you'd want to be a Christian. My prayer is that as God's word is proclaimed, after we look at this text, God's spirit would arrest your heart and lead you to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm here to persuade you. That's my aim, because that's Paul's aim in this text. And if you're here this morning and you do belong to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, my prayer for you, as it's been my prayer all this week, is that you would leave this service with your heart soaring in praise for what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, that you would be edified by the good news that we cherish as Christians. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. I think we have some paperback Bibles there in the seat in front of you. That's page 961. And I'm actually going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter. Here now, the word of God. Paul writes this, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15. He writes, Now I, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay, Paul, tell us, what is this gospel message that you preached? He tells us, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Amen and amen. This is God's word. 
how many of you uh, enjoy a good riddle? How many enjoy a good riddle? Okay. Well, I'm going I'm to give you a riddle now. See if you can figure it out, if you can enjoy it, okay? Here's a riddle. Five frogs were sitting on a log. Four decided to jump off the log. How many frogs are still on the log? One? No. The answer is five. You know why the answer is five? Because there's a big difference, friend, between deciding and doing. In the passage I just read, Paul gives one of the clearest explanations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know why? It's not so that you would decide to believe. It's so that you would believe. See, Paul just want us, doesn't want us to know about the gospel, mull it over in our minds, and yeah, I, decide, I think I'm going to do that. No, he actually wants us to believe it. This is to say, Paul wants us to put all our hope, all our confidence in the message of Christ crucified to save sinners. Paul's point in this passage is simply this. It's an exhortation and says this. Believe the gospel. This is the message. Three words. Don't decide to do it. Do it. Believe the gospel. Think of it like this. Think of it like this chair, okay? I have decided to sit in the chair. What am I doing right now? Am I sitting in the chair? No. I'm putting all my confidence, my confidence in standing in my legs, but now I'm sitting in the chair, and notice, all my weight, everything, I'm putting my hope that the chair is going to keep me up. This is what Paul is saying. He's like, believe the gospel. Don't just decide to, but go all in. Put all your confidence in this message of Christ crucified to save sinners. This is what it means to believe. You are trusting in nothing else to save you except the personal work of Jesus Christ. You're not hedging your bets. It's not like, okay, I, I'm going to... I'm going to believe in Jesus a little bit, but I'm also going to put my faith in my own righteousness just to hedge my bets. No, this text is calling us to go all in on Jesus. And here's the question we need to ask ourselves, and that you're probably asking yourself as well, and that is, okay, why? Why should I do this? Why should I believe this gospel message? Especially, Aaron, because I'm skeptical of this idea of a man 2,000 years ago being killed and then coming back to life. Why believe such a message? Well, Paul actually gives us several reasons why you should. And the first is this. Notice, Paul teaches, I believe, that we are to put our faith in the gospel because it's foundational for living. Notice how he begins this chapter. Look at verse 1 again. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Uh, recently, I had a chance to uh, go out to California and to visit my family for a couple days and 
while I was out there, I was reminded once again how several years ago, my parents did some remodeling in their house. And one of the things they remodeled was their attic. They decided to put floorboards up in their attic. So when they got in the attic, you didn't have to just balance on the joists to get where you needed to go. But they put floorboards down so they could also then increase their storage. Well, while I was out there, I just was reminded once again how I remember when that initially happened and after the floorboards were installed several years ago, that I came home to discover a small hole in the ceiling and a dad who was upset. You see, one of the floorboards had been installed improperly. So when he stepped on it, the board couldn't bear his weight and through the ceiling, <laughs> his foot went. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced the sensation of falling through a ceiling, but from what I have observed, I would not recommend it. Think about it. It's actually quite a scary thing. I mean, when walking in an attic, you're placing your confidence in those floorboards, trusting that they're going to bear your weight. What a shock, then, to place your weight on something, believing it will sustain you, when suddenly it gives way. Friend, I may not know everything about you, but I do know that there is something you're standing on for your security and your sense of well-being. There's something you're trusting to bear the weight of your life. There's something you're building your life upon. And what the Bible repeatedly teaches us and life repeatedly teaches us is that the things of this world that we often choose to build our lives upon, they are unstable. They're not secure. You know what they're like? They're like those improperly installed floorboards in my parents' attic. I mean, for a moment, just think about all the things we build our lives upon. Think of the things we often choose to be the foundation of our lives. A good, good reputation at work, or money, or a certain relationship, or my appearance, or the success of my job, or the, the size of my house. There's all these things that we say, you know what, I'm going to build my life upon that. Friend, I want to warn you, all these things can be taken away from you in a moment. And as shocking as it is to place your weight on a floorboard only to have it give way, it's quite another thing to have the floorboard of your life give way. Because you know what? You're not simply going to suffer a hurt ankle. You're going to go into despair. And it's been really interesting this past year you see, all the events and circumstances of this past year, many of our floorboards have been pulled out from underneath us, haven't they? Those things we've been putting our weight upon. Now consider what Paul says in this opening verse. Paul teaches that there is something that can bear the weight of your life, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something that you can stand upon, it's a secure foundation. And why is the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message of Christ crucified to save sinners, why is it a secure foundation? Because notice what Paul says next. Notice it's because the gospel 
is salvation for sinners. Look at verse 2. He says, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Several years ago, the makers of leading laundry detergents, they asked consumers what they want from a detergent. Interesting question, wouldn't you say? You know the consumers answered? The consumers said what they want are whiter whites and brighter brights in their laundry. So the detergent brands attempted to prove how they got your whites whiter and your brights brighter. Do you remember this? Each brand sought to convince consumers that their one additive, whatever that one thing is, it was more effective than all the other brands. But interestingly enough, such marketing did not increase sales. Later, a group of anthropologists discovered why this approach really wasn't driving buying decisions. And you know what they discovered? They discovered that when people took their laundry out of the dryer, and maybe you do this as well, when they take their laundry out of the dryer, the first thing they do is not hold it up to a light to see if it's bright, white, or sparkling clean. You know, what, you know what's the first thing people did when they brought it out of the dryer? Smelled it. Author Simon Sinek writes this about this revelation. He says, this was an amazing discovery. Feeling clean was more important to people than being clean. Friend, because of our sin, we know that we are filthy. And we feel filthy. And as nice and polite as you all look, and I gotta tell you, you look great this Easter morning. <laughs> Home run. Well job, everybody. But as nice and polite as you all seem, the truth is, we all have done things and thought things that we would be absolutely terrified if others found out. And we feel filthy about it. And this is the guilt of sin. We all know we have not loved God like we ought. We have not served him like we ought. No, we have chosen to live for ourselves and we've done self-centered things, and we've thought self-centered thoughts that we are ashamed of. And like those consumers with the detergent, more than anything, in our honest moments, we want to be made clean. We want to feel clean. And friend, the good news of this passage, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you can simply by faith. Notice what Paul says here. He says the gospel saves sinners. It makes them clean before God. How? By faith, by holding fast to the gospel. This is what makes the gospel good news. You don't become clean by scrubbing the sin out of your life through righteousness. No, you become clean through the righteousness of another. 
Jesus Christ by faith in him. And this is what's really hard for people to understand, that I can be clean, I can be forgiven simply by faith. How is that even possible, you might ask? Well, Paul answers that question. Because look at what he says next, and here's the third reason why you ought to believe the gospel. And that's because the gospel is Christ-focused. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he, referring to Christ, was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel is Christ-focused. Um, my 10-year-old niece, Claire, who my family, we just absolutely adore, she has been on a letter-writing kick as of late. And she, she writes handwritten notes to all of my kids. And it's quite sweet. And in fact, and I know my poor brother Dave, the amount of postage he's paying on this, but, <laughs> but th there was a stretch where we had, we got a letter from Claire five days in a row. And my kids loved it. I mean, I mean, who doesn't like getting a handwritten note in the mail? Anyone? I mean, I love it. Do you guys love it? Right? But you know what I don't like getting in the mail? The, I was very quick to answer that. That's right. <laughs> yeah. This, this illustration is going to connect, evidently. Yes. I don't like opening bills. I don't like getting bills. I like to just put those in a pile unopened on my desk. And you know why I don't like opening bills? Because I don't like to see what I owe. I'd rather just ignore it. Sadly, that can be our tendency concerning our spiritual condition before God. Friend, due to our sin, we are in debt to God. And this debt is a real threat. It is hostile towards us. For the debt we have incurred is death in eternal separation from God. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. We have earned a debt because of our sin. And I got bad news for you. You can't pay it off. And here's the thing. We all know that we're sinners. We all know this. Everyone knows. But we'll say it in ways like this. Well, I'm just human. Or I have imperfections and flaws. I have yet to meet a human being who says, I'm without sin. I don't make mistakes. I don't do things wrong. I don't have self-centered thoughts. I've yet to meet a person. All of us here know that we're sinners. That's, that's not our problem. No, our problem is we just don't think our sin deserves judgment. But it does. And Scripture makes this abundantly clear. Our sin earns us something, and that is eternal. And I'm using my words carefully here. Eternal judgment from God in hell. Friend, you have a soul that will never die. And that sin that makes you feel guilty and filthy that sin that makes you feel unclean, 
that sin condemns you to judgment. And you can't pay it off. Yet hear the good news of this passage. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ paid that debt fully for you. This is what the Bible means when it says Christ died for our sins. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you failed to live. Then he died the death you deserve to die for your sins. On the cross, Jesus Christ fully absorbed the wrath of God, listen to me, do you for your sin. And then to prove that your debt has been fully satisfied, Christ rose from the dead. Think of it like this. The resurrection of Jesus, what we celebrate every Easter, the resurrection of Jesus proves that the check to pay off your sin debt has cleared. And what I want you to see, friend, is that all the work required of you to be forgiven of your sin, be made clean, has been accomplished by Jesus. This is to say, salvation is not dependent upon you. Friend, please hear me. The gospel is Christ-focused, not you-focused. The gospel is not try harder. The gospel is not work off your sin debt. No, the gospel is believe by faith what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. This is why, look, if you hear nothing else I say this morning, please hear me that when I say this. Salvation is not achieved by righteousness or good works. No, salvation is received by faith alone, by going all in, putting all your confidence, not in your own morality, not in your own church attendance, not in your own good deeds or that you volunteer at Thanksgiving and Christmas at the homeless shelter, or that you let the person go in front of you in line at Kroger. No, you're not looking to yourself to Savior, you're looking to Christ because the gospel is Christ-focused, not you-focused. You see, the gospel is like getting a bill in the mail that says, paid in full on the inside. However, friend, in order to receive the salvation, you first must open the bill to see what you owe. This means, friend, you have to own the fact that you are a sinner deserving death and hell. For it's only after opening the bill and seeing what you owe that you can then receive the good news that it's paid in full. Salvation comes to those who believe that Christ's work alone is sufficient to save him or her. This is the good news. And friend, can I ask, have you done that? Or have you just decided to? Don't let another moment pass, friend, where you just have decided, but believe. Don't put your hope in yourself, but put your hope in Christ. 
Because what you need to know, friends, is that this gospel message is not some random innovation. For consider what Paul says next, and that is that the gospel is biblically based. Notice what he says there in verses 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the what? Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the what? Scriptures. Do you, do you happen to know what a microwave oven, a slinky, fireworks, and potato chips all have in common? They all were invented by mistake. Think about that. No one planned to make them. A microwave, a slinky, fireworks, and No one planned to make them. In contrast, God planned to send Jesus Christ to die for your sins and be raised from the dead. And how do we know that this was Jesus' plan or God's plan all along? Because of what Paul writes here. Jesus did all these things according to the what? Scriptures referring to the Old Testament. I mean, just a cursory reading of the Gospels or Matthew's Gospel. You'll see Jesus doing things where the author is constantly citing Old Testament references to show that Christ's actions are in fulfillment to Messianic prophecies. You think of the Old Testament concerning Christ's death. Isaiah 53, Psalm 50, or 22 speaks of Christ's death. The resurrection is spoken of in Psalm 16 and Daniel 12. Christ crucified to save sinners has been God's plan all along. And so was his resurrection from the dead. And here, and I just want to lean in a moment here, here's where many people check out. They say, I was with you, with you all the way till you got to this part about a dead man coming back to life. In fact, I remember a very dear friend of mine, I was talking to him, and we'd had many gospel conversations. I was telling him about what it means to put your faith in Christ, and we had read books together. And I said, tell me, friend, what is keeping you from going all in, to move from deciding to doing to put your faith in Christ? And he answered me, he said, Aaron, it's the resurrection. It's too unbelievable for me. He had doubts. And so did the, some people in the church in Corinth, and that's exactly where Paul goes next. And here's the last reason why you should believe the gospel, and that's because, notice, Paul makes it clear because it's historically verified. Notice what he says here in verses 5 and 8. He's talking about the resurrected Christ, and the resurrected Christ, verse 8, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's a reference to death. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And friend, this is what separates biblical Christianity from every other world religion. Christianity is the only religion that is historically defensible. 
What I mean is the central claims of Christianity are based on public events that can be historically verified. In contrast, the central claims of other religions cannot be historically tested. They just have to be believed by blind faith. I've, I've shared this with you, I think, once before, but it's worth sharing again. C. Michael Pattern captures this point so well with this illustration. And I, I share it because I really wanted to sear into our minds this truth. Now, um, I used to teach art classes. Great content with the illustration. It would have failed my art class, though, okay? But I want you to notice, because this illustration gets at the point Paul is driving here. Notice he correctly identifies how all other religions were started by either a private dream about God or a private angelic encounter about God or a private idea about God or one person told everybody what he saw. Christianity, on the other hand, is not birthed out of a private encounter but a public ministry. Jesus taught publicly, was killed publicly, rose from the dead publicly, and then the public told everyone what they saw. And this is what Paul is getting at. This is why he lists these eyewitnesses of the resurrected of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying this, look, you don't believe me that Jesus of Nazareth, the one who claimed to be the one true son of God who died on the cross, you don't believe that he came back from the dead? Don't take my word for it. Ask these people. And most of them, they're still around. Talk to them. Hear what they have to say. I mean, consider for a moment the 500 people whom Jesus appeared to at one time. Many skeptics will claim, well, you know, this is what happened. The followers of Jesus, they loved him a lot and they became really emotionally attached to them. And to help with their grieving process, they were just hallucinating that they saw the resurrected Christ. However, psychiatry has taught us that groups of people do not have the same hallucination. So these 500 people, they didn't have a group hallucination. Others will say, well, no, you know what happened? Jesus actually didn't die on the cross, but he just passed out. And then once he got into that cool tomb for a couple days, he was just resuscitated and, and got back his strength. Now, this too makes little historical sense. And actually, when a person says that, they're kind of slapping the Romans in the face. Because who are the people that killed Jesus? The Romans, listen, they were the expert killers of their day. I like to say they were the SEAL Team 6 of their day. They knew when someone had died. Consider also for a moment the fact that the tomb was empty. No one in Jerusalem would have believed for a moment that Jesus rose from the dead if the tomb was not empty. The skeptics could have easily produced his rotted corpse, but the tomb was empty, and even enemies of Christianity affirm this truth. So here I'm going to press in a little bit. If you, if you find yourself to be an intellectually honest person, then here's the question you need to ask yourself, and that's this. If Jesus didn't actually say the things he claimed to say, 
if he wasn't crucified publicly and then raised from the dead publicly, don't you think people living at that time could have easily disproved Christianity? I mean, if I decided to start a religion of my own, let's just say we'll call it the religion of Wajniki, my own religion, okay? Let's have fun here. If I were to do that, I would not make false claims to recent events. Why? Because those events could be tested. And I would not give the details about the time, place, and people involved. Why? Because those too could be tested. Yet this is what we find with Christianity. Claims linked to real historical events. And here's, again, I told you from the, from the outset, my aim is to persuade you. My aim is to persuade you. And I want to argue the only plausible reason why Christianity has survived thousands of years is because it's true. But there's even a stronger argument here, one that's often overlooked, one that I kind of actually get a little kick out of, and that's in verse 7. Notice in verse 7, who did Jesus appear to? Who does it say? Remember? James. You know who that was? James was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, think about this for a moment. Look, I have an older brother named Todd. And I didn't care what my brother Todd did, but there was no way on earth that I was ever going to believe that Todd was the Son of God worthy of me to worship him. But you know what? James was convinced that Jesus was. However, it wasn't always that way. In Mark chapter 3, we learned that no one in Jesus' family believed that he was the Son of God. Indeed, they all thought he was out of his mind. And it wasn't until the resurrected Jesus appeared to his half-brother James, like Paul mentions in this passage, that James then believed Jesus was the Son of God. Think about that. The half-brother of Jesus believed Jesus to be divine. And friend, if that doesn't convince you of the deity of Jesus, I don't know what will. Friend, if there's one thing this past year has taught us, it's that death is no respecter of persons. You are going to die. So what is your hope in the face of death? Is it energy redistribution? Friend, no one living at the time of Christ expected him to rise from the dead, but he did. So you know what that means? It means this. Your quest for finding God is over. Now you have a choice. The choice to either receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus gives for all who trust in him or to reject it. There's no third option. Receive it or reject it. But friend, if you reject it, know what you are rejecting. You are rejecting good news. Faith, it's precisely these moments and these mo Sunday mornings, such as Easter, where I know like that story I told at the beginning, we have an aversion to death. And I know I've kind of been very blunt and direct about it. 
but I'm doing so out of love, friend. I want to encourage you to let today be the day of salvation for you. We go from deciding to actually doing, to turn from living for yourself, to give your full allegiance to King Jesus. I'm going to be up here after the service, and if you have any questions, I would love to talk with you more about what we've just looked at, this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.